Let's go. Um, we're going to pick up where we left off in our series on Esther this morning, and I'm, I'm really excited about what the Lord wants to share. Um, it's a good word. It's a good word that's in his word. And uh, let's give it our, our attention this morning, shall we? We're going to turn to Esther chapter 2, and starting in verse 1. It says, But after Xerxes' anger had subsided, he began thinking about Vashti and what she had done and the decree he had made. So his personal attendant suggested, Let us search the empire to find beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint agents in each province to bring these beautiful young women into the royal harem at the fortress of Susa. Haggai, the king's eunuch in charge of the harem, will see that they are all given beauty treatments. After that, the young woman who most pleases the king will be made queen instead of Vashti. This advice was very appealing to the king, so he put the plan into effect. Okay, so let, let's break down what's happening here, and let's be very clear about what's happening here. But before we get to this, these few verses, let's remember um, in chapter 1, it ends with the king asking Vashti to come into the room and parade herself around in front of a bunch of drunk men. If you missed that sermon, you can watch it online. I'm not going to go into great detail. But she says no. He is furious. And he's like, what can we do? Uh, Memekin comes out and he says, let's get rid of her because if we allow this to happen, every woman in all of Persia is going to revolt and we simply can't have that, right? And so they banish Queen Vashti. And now here we are at the beginning of chapter 2. And it's been about three or four years since Vashti has been banished. So some time has gone by. And we find Xerxes having been defeated in a battle against Greece. Okay, so this is what's transpired in that time. And now he is back in his kingdom, disappointment. He's been told no again, this time by the Greeks, like, no, you're not going to take our land. Get out of here. And he's sad. He's disappointed. And he's looking for comfort. He's looking for his wife. He's looking for Vashti. Well, she's not around. Why? Because of what he has done. He banished her. And so I I think it's really funny how the um, attendants quickly jump into action, right? Oh, I know what we can do, king. Let's let's have this, this deal, right? And the reason that they are so quick to action is because they don't want the king to have time to remember whose fault this is, right? Like the reason you are missing your queen is because of us. So let's come up with a solution as to what we can do for the king to not punish us. And so what is happening here, what this proposal that they have made is really, it's like a, uh, the bachelor on steroids, okay? And I'm not going to ask who watches that show. Uh, I don't want to embarrass anybody here in Jesus' name, but it, it's like that, okay? Except it's way bigger and way worse, okay? There, is that rain? Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> You get to an age in your life where all the people with their top down, Uh, no one sees you, Buff John. No one sees you. You get to an age in your life where all of a sudden rain, it's like, this is saving me money. I don't have to water my plants in my yard anymore. That's when you know that life is changing for you. Um, But what they are doing is they are in all 127 provinces of Persia, they are gathering Young virgin girls. Okay, and I say girls because we're talking about like 13-year-olds here that are going to come and and be a part of this more or less contest to become the queen. And and I believe it was Josephus argues that there was about 400 girls that were taken. And when you do the math, that's really not that many. 
when you consider that there's 127 provinces in the entire empire of Persia. So it's about a little over three girls per province. But they're coming into this place, and what they're going to do is they're going to go to this harem uh, that's led by this guy, Haggai, and for a year, all right, one year, they're going to have beauty treatments put on them, perfume, and, and, and all sorts of other things that are going to allow them to be presented to the king. And what does that mean? It means that they're going to spend the night, they're going to sleep with the king. And if he likes them, then they'll be put in category A. And if he doesn't, they'll go on to their, the, the second harem, which is basically like once they've slept with him, they're, they're, they're done, right? They're going to go and they're going to live basically an imprisoned life as a wife or some, as a concubine. And it's just not, what, what I'm trying to say is this is a gross and very perverted thing that is happening here. Let's make no bones about it whatsoever. These girls, I can't imagine, are very thrilled to be plucked out of their homes, away from their friends and their family, and possibly someone that they actually wanted to marry, and go and compete for the affections of a king where if you say no to him, you are banished. All right? And if you are not picked, and the odds are not very good because there's 400 girls in this whole harem, you're going to just be cast aside and put over here. This is not good. This is a gross thing. And here, here's what we need to understand. When God is shoved out of the door, perversion comes in. Big time. We see it not just in the Bible, but we see it today. And, and I, see, I see it in three forms, ultimately. The perversion of, it's a lust. It's a lust of money, of power, and of sex. Those three things all together, when we shove God out the door, and when you read uh, things like this, instances like this, and look, it's all over the Old Testament, y'all. There are some crazy things that you can read about in the Old Testament. Ask yourself this, who are they worshiping in this moment? Who are they, are they worshiping God and this is actually happening? No, they are not. They are worshiping false idols, false gods, and God is nowhere on the scene. In Persia, God is not their God. And so this perversion exists. We even talked a couple weeks ago, why does God let bad things happen, right? Very light topic for a family Sunday, right? And he, he doesn't allow bad things to happen. He allows freedom to happen. And sadly, many people in this world, with that freedom, they choose to push God out the door. And when we push God out the door, we open the door for evil to come in. And you might be sitting here and saying, James, well, I didn't push God out the door. I'm sitting here in church. I read my Bible. I do all the things. I'm pursuing God. And yet still, I see evil knocking at my door. Well, here's, here's the reality of the situation. Evil does not stay within certain lines. All right? It's, it's, not, com it's not confined to its little bit. Evil finds the cracks. Evil seeps out, and evil affects even those who choose to pursue the Lord in the freedom that they are given. This affected Esther. Esther was not looking for this. Esther did not go and say, hey, how can I be queen? How, how, can, how can I? She was just plucked out of where she was at, and she was put in a very perverted and gross situation. But that is not the end of her story. I was, uh, Jesse and I, we were listening to this uh, sermon the other day at home, and, and, and um, I, I have to reference it because he quoted the greatest movie ever, ever made in The Princess Bride. And, and he, said, he, he, he says this, I don't even, it's not even in my notes, y'all, it's just in my heart and in my head because I love it. 
And he says, life is pain, highness. Anyone who says otherwise is selling you something. And and then then the pastor who was preaching said, guess what? The Bible isn't selling you anything. It tells us that life is hard. It tells us that there are going to be trials and there are going to be tribulations. There are going to be hard things that we have to face. Jesus himself said so. And he even said, a servant is not greater than his master. And so what Jesus is saying is, if the world hates me, you ain't getting around it either. Evil is going to come out through the cracks and it will find us at times. But that is not the end of the story. It is not the end of the story. It affected Esther. And here she is. And and this is where the story really pivots, okay? Up until this point, all of the book of Esther has been about the king. It's been about how wealthy he is, how powerful he is, how big Persia is, the banquets that he throws, all those things. It's been about Xerxes. And then we come to Esther chapter 2, verse 5. It says, At that time there was a Jewish man in the fortress of Susa, whose name was Mordecai, son of Jair. He was from the tribe of Benjamin and was a descendant of Kish and Shemaiah. His family had been among those who, with King Jehoshuan of Judah, had been exiled from Jerusalem to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. This man had a very beautiful and lovely young cousin, Hadassah, who was also called Esther. When her father and mother died, Mordecai adopted her into his family and raised her as his own daughter. Enter Esther. Here she is. So the story pivots, and again, all of it has been about the power and the wealth and the greatness of Xerxes and Persia. And as the story pivots, this is what I love about God. He says, yeah, 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 okay, so there's all that stuff, right? There's these banquets, there's these power, there's this money, but I got these two people. I got two. In the midst of this great empire, this vast empire, I got two people. One of those is a girl who is an orphan, who is Jewish, who is poor, who is getting plucked out of her home and getting put into a perverse place. And here is the great difference between the world and God. The world looks at her and says, you have nothing to offer. You're poor, you're Jewish, you're an orphan, and you're a girl in Persia. You have nothing to offer. You have no value whatsoever where God says, you are perfect for the job. You are the perfect person for the job. Two versus an entire empire. I want to say this to some of us this morning that need to hear it. I believe this is a word from the Lord. Do not, for a second, think or allow the enemy to tell you that because of past circumstances in your life where you were found to be in, a, in some sort of perverse lifestyle or situation even, that you are now disqualified from God's use, where you no longer have any value to God's kingdom, to where I lived this way, This was done to me. I chose this. And suddenly now I am not equipped. I am disqualified for what God wants to do with me. There are many of us in here that need to hear that this morning. 
And you have been disqualifying yourself and saying, I have no value because of my past circumstances. And therefore, I cannot be used by God. Esther, again, poor, orphan, girl, Jewish, all of those things under the reign of Persia. And God says, you're the one. You are the one that I am going to use. says in here that she is beautiful and she is lovely. We're going to get back to that, but I just want to point that out. Remember that she is beautiful and she is lovely. Okay? Because listen, you can be beautiful and you ain't that lovely. All right? <laughs> Some of us remember like back in high school, oh, she cute. Oh, never mind. You know? <laughs> you can be beautiful and not lovely. Esther is beautiful and lovely. It's an outward beauty, and the lovely is that inner beauty. Okay? So just remember that as we keep reading here in verse 8. As a result of the king's decree, Esther, along with many other young women, was brought to the king's harem at the fortress of Susa and placed in Haggai's care. Haggai was very impressed with Esther and treated her kindly. He quickly ordered a special menu for her and provided her with beauty treatments. He also assigned her seven maids specially chosen from the king's palace, and he moved her and her maids into the best place in the harem. Okay, does this sound familiar to anybody? If if you've studied the, the life of Joseph, this should sound very familiar. Because Joseph, the story of Joseph is evil came and found him as well. He was sold by his family into slavery, right? And while he was in slavery, by the way, a Hebrew in Egypt... As he was sold into slavery, he's accused of rape. As he's accused of rape, he's thrown into jail. And then all of a sudden, he's put before Pharaoh, the the most powerful man in all of Egypt. And along that way, all of it, he he is recognized with this favor of God on him, and he's given everything everywhere he goes. Evil came to him, and he didn't disqualify himself from being used by God. And that is what is happening with Esther right here. She gets to the harem, and Haggai's like, he's actually really thinking for the king at this moment. He's saying, that's the one. That's the one, and I'm going to give her, I'm going to give her these maids. I'm going to give her the best in the, in, the, in the room. I'm going to give her all the treatments. I'm going to set her up to be the one. I'm going to set her up to be the one. And in verse 10, it says, As Esther had not told anyone of her nationality and family background because Mordecai had directed her not to do so. Every day, Mordecai would take a walk near the courtyard of the harem to find out about Esther and what was happening to her. You see this worried father vibe. Let's skip down to uh, verse 15, about halfway through the verse. When it was Esther's turn to go to the king, she accepted the advice of Haggai, the eunuch in charge of the harem. She asked for nothing except what he suggested. And she was admired by everyone who saw her. Esther was taken to King Xerxes at the royal palace in early winter of the seventh year of his reign. And the king loved Esther more than any of the other young women. He was so delighted with her that he set the royal crown on her head and declared her queen instead of Vashti. To celebrate the occasion, he gave a surprise, surprise, great banquet in Esther's honor. My man loves a banquet, which will actually come into play later, believe it or not. In Esther's honor for all his nobles and officials, declaring a public holiday for the provinces and giving generous gifts to everyone, even after all the young women had been transferred to the second harem and Mordecai had become a palace official, Esther continued to keep her family background and nationality a secret. She was still following Mordecai's directions, just as she did when she lived in his home. Okay, so I want to break down here. 
five qualities of Esther. And don't worry, it's going to be one, and then we're going to lump the other four together. But the first one that I want to talk about, let's go back to that uh, description of her. She was beautiful and lovely. Another word for that, y'all, is pure. She, she was pure. And in a world that is perverse, and in a world that is gross, in a world that has forgotten and pushed God out the door, listen, purity, purity sticks out like a sore thumb. And we know that because of what it says later in, in verse uh, 15. She was admired by everyone who saw her. Others say she, they looked favorably on her. It was like as she was walking through this harem, it was like the crowd just kind of parted. And everyone just stopped and they saw that not only was she beautiful, this is a room of 400 beautiful girls, but she was lovely. She had God's favor on her. And she was not disqualifying herself from God using her. And her purity, that loveliness that was inside, it came out of her and it stuck out like a sore thumb to where Haggai and everybody else, including the king, found favor with her and looked admirably on her. It's like the king sees her and goes, that's the one. Because she stuck out like a sore thumb. Listen, do not let the world tell you what is attractive. Purity is attractive. To all, you, to, to all the single people in the room, listen, purity, purity is what is attractive. Ladies, boys go after what is impure. Men are attracted to purity. I'm gonna say that again, in case you didn't hear me. Boys go after what is impure, but men seek purity. Men seek purity. Listen, I, I pray, I have three girls, and I pray purity over them every single day. Every single day. Because I want men to be attracted to them. I want godly men to see them and say, she sticks out like a sore thumb. And I want to encourage you parents of, of boys and girls, pray that over them every single day. Because it's in prayer that they become pure because purity is a gift from God. It is a gift from God. And, and I want to say this as well. If you're sitting in your seat this morning and you hear that word pure and it, it hurts you because you feel that either purity was taken from you or you gave it away, check this out. God gives purity and he also restores purity. He gave it and he will give it again if we pursue him and if we pursue it. So if that is you, or if you are single and you're really, you want a husband and you want a wife so bad, pursue purity. Don't pursue people. Philippians 4, 8 says, and now dear brothers and sisters, one final thing, fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure. And here it is, lovely and admirable. Think about these things that are excellent and worthy of praise. So if that's you, forget about going on all the apps and going, and maybe if I find someone at Publix today or this is it, whatever, search for purity. Search for purity in your life. And I'm telling you right now, you will become visible. You will be seen. I'm like, oh, dang, where'd she come from? <laughs> because that's what sticks out. Otherwise, you're just a needle in a stack of needles. 
Pursue purity. Pursue it. And if it was taken from you or you gave it away, know that God will give it back. He will give it back. Esther was pure. And she stuck out like a sore thumb. The other four characteristics that is really going to be a theme going forward as we continue this study of Esther. If you're taking notes, write these down. She is humble. She is teachable. She is strong. And she is courageous. Humble. Teachable. Strong. And courageous. And those four qualities are mutually inclusive of each other. They are not exclusive to one another. And we confuse being humble and humility with weakness, right? If I'm humble, if, if, I'm, if I am, show any sort of humility, then I must be weak, which is so insanely wrong. The more that I read the Bible and the more that I read about the people that God uses, the common thread, the common uh, characteristic of all these people is humility. It's humility where God says, I can work with that. But if you want to disqualify yourself from God's use, let pride take root in your life. God will say, it was a good run. I'm done. Ask yourself this question. Was Jesus weak when he got on his knees and washed his disciples' feet? Was that a sign of weakness? That was strength. And here we see... And and why we can say Esther is humble is because of that last verse that we read in verse 20. She was still following Mordecai's directions just as she did when she lived in his home. Not, and, and see if this sounds familiar here. Okay, Mordecai. One, you're not really even my real dad. Okay. Two, uh, I don't know if you noticed this, but the king, he really likes me. He threw a banquet for me. And, and made it a holiday and gave gifts for me. And also, check this out. I got a crown on my head. I'm the queen, baby. Right? So I think it's okay. I think it's all right if I tell him that I'm Jewish. I got this. Mm. We are so good at being so... De- Whoa. <coughs> Excuse me. So desperate for the Lord... We are so, when we, when we need God, we get on our knees, we get in the word, we come to church, and then we get through whatever season we're in and we're out of it, and then we go, thanks God, I got it from here. And we ease off the gas of our pursuit of God because now we are good. I got the crown on my head. I'm in the palace. They throw the banquet for me. I don't, I don't need you like I did anymore, God. So I don't really need to listen to you anymore. Do it all the time. Esther, as being queen of the, most, of the most powerful and greatest empire in the world, is still listening to her adopted dad, who's just hanging outside the city gates, checking on her. And she's saying, if that's what you want me to do, that's what I'm going to do. She's humble, even in her position as queen. She's teachable because she goes to Haggai and he says, do this, do that, and the other. And she says, okay, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, and do the other. I'm not going to do anything else except what Haggai tells me to do. All of those things take strength and courage. It takes courage 
to be obedient when you don't get it. It takes strength to listen to someone when you even outrank them. Being humble is hard. It is not easy most of the time because what we are doing is we are putting aside our own flesh, right? And our own desire to be exalted in a moment, to be credited with something, right? That's usually what it boils down to. Saying, I'm going to lay that aside and I'm going to serve. I'm going to bow. I'm going to be humble in this moment and I'm going to listen. First Samuel 17, verse 45. This is the story of David and Goliath. David said to the Philistine, to Goliath, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. <clears throat> this day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you, he will give all of you into our hands. That is a great picture of strength and humility. David confronts the giant and he doesn't say, I am going to do this and I am going to do that. And my, he says, no, the Lord, you have come against the Lord. And so I, in my humility, I'm honoring, the, I'm honoring the Lord in this, even though I'm fixing to cut your head off. But it takes strength to stand in that position. It takes strength. So let's not confuse humility with weakness. Far from it. Far from it. Teachability. I'll never forget my first moment of teachability here at Beaches Chapel. When I came on staff here um, a few while, long years ago, um, I'd been hired on to, you know, to um, be a youth pastor, a co-youth pastor with Kelly Trent. And, you know, when you come on staff, I don't know if it's like this in other workplaces because I've never worked anywhere else besides the church. Um, but, you know, you have that honeymoon phase where... <clears throat> Like literally every idea you have is just genius, right? <clears throat> and wow, I mean, and I experienced that for a little while. It's like, James, oh, let me sit down. That is amazing, you know? Everyone listens to you. They value your opinion. It's like you're important in the room. And then after a few months, it's like, all right, shut up, kid. Like, you know, you're, you're done here. And the honeymoon phase is over and you just have to continue on. And I'll never forget... Um, I don't remember what I did. I, honestly, I honestly don't. I'm sure it was something stupid. But um, I got called into, at the time, Pastor Steve. He was with Pastor Here's office. And um, he corrected me on something that I did. And if you know Pastor Steve, he had a way of doing that. I was a little blunt, um, but very clear at the same time. And, um, and I, you know, I'm sure I needed it, for sure. I was new. I didn't know. And I left work that day and feeling kind of hurt, feeling like, well, he doesn't know what he's talking about. And uh, I've been doing youth ministry for a good five minutes now, so uh, clearly I'm an expert. And sure, he's been in ministry for like 25, 30 years, but I know what's right in this moment. And I left work feeling like that. And I remember I pulled out and I, 
I turned left onto Florida when you could still turn left onto Florida. <laughs> ah, the good old days. Hallelujah. When they told us it would be finished in July, none of us ever thought to ask the question, yeah, but what year are you talking about? So in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Uh, <laughs> turn left out of here onto Florida, went through that glorious intersection. And I remember when I got to the light at third to turn right to go home, God said this to me. He said, are you going to be teachable in this moment? And I was like, I don't want to be teachable in this moment. Because that means that I did something wrong. And then I have to learn from it. And I probably have to say I'm sorry about it. But if we want to be used by God, if we want to grow in the Lord, we have to understand about ourselves. Check this out, y'all. We don't know everything. When I first became lead pastor of Beaches Chapel, I stood right where I'm standing this morning and I said to you all, I said, you, you, you need to have patience with me because I'm going to mess up. I'm not going to be perfect. And I hope that you are going to be quick to forgive me in those moments. And all of us are the same. None of us bat a thousand. We all will make mistakes. But here's the thing. We don't in those moments then take it and beat ourselves up and say, I'm a failure, I'm an idiot, I'm never going to get it right. That's what the enemy likes to tell us. But what we say in those moments is, okay, Lord, I am sorry. And if you have to go to someone else, you say, hey, I am sorry. But then with that, you say, Lord, teach me so that I never have to do that again. So that I will be different now than I was then. And I'm saying to you all, I hope I'm a different pastor in a year's time from now, but it's going to take me learning, right? Just as parents, as husbands and wives, we want to be better then than we are now. That takes us being teachable and listening to the Lord, listening to the Holy Spirit and saying, I'm sorry. And I'm not going to just wrap myself in my failure. I'm going to say, I'm sorry. And I'm going to learn from it. And I'm going to move on. And I'm going to be different than I was before. I'm not going to, check this out, disqualify myself from what I did for what God wants to use me for. Esther, she was pure. She stuck out like a sore thumb. And it all came from within. And she was humble. She was teachable. She is strong and courageous. And we're going to see those attributes continue to unfold in the story of Esther. We're going to have the band come back up. And I want to just say again this morning, you know the, the name Esther, you know what it means? It means star. What do stars do? They shine in dark places. And that's what Esther did. She was a star in a dark place. And she didn't let the darkness consume her. She didn't let the darkness define her. Instead, she allowed what God had put inside of her, that purity, that loveliness, shine through her. And she stuck out like a sore thumb. And in doing so, even in her promotion, even as she became queen, she never forgot who she was. She continued to listen to Mordecai. She listened to Haggai. And God elevated her in those moments for things that she would never dream up. 
because of her humility, because of her teachability, because of her strength and her courage and her purity, God used her, spoiler alert here, to save a nation, to save an entire nation. Don't tell me humility is weakness. But if you want to be used, you have to be teachable. You have to be pliable. We don't have it all figured out. Not a single one of us. I hate to burst any bubbles in here. But none of us in here are a finished product or have all the answers. We are going to mess up. Will we be teachable in those moments? Will we continue to follow after the Lord and be obedient? Well, I'm going to say again, obedient to the Lord when we feel like we've come out of that storm and we're back on the hilltop. Or are we going to say, I got it, Lord? Are we going to let past circumstances in our life disqualify us from being used by God? Are we going to let past circumstances tell us that we have lost our purity? I pray that the answer to those are no, because we serve a God who is greater. And your story is not over and is certainly not defined by things of the past. God is all about restoration. It's everywhere in the Bible, in the Old and the New Testament. Restore the joy of my salvation, said the psalmist. Restore the joy. Father, I pray right now, Lord Jesus, that you would restore the joy of those in here who have let past circumstances dictate their present and affect their future. God, restore purity. Restore purity, God. And God, I pray that as, as a people, as, as Beaches Chapel, that we would stick out like a sore thumb. God, we're not interested in blending in. We don't want to blend in. Why would we want to blend in to sin? God, we want to stick out. God, I pray that we would pursue those things that you call us to in Philippians 4, 8. Things that are pure and lovely and righteous. That we would pursue you, Lord. And that as we do, all those other things will fall into place exactly like you would have them. And it would be your doing. And I pray, I pray for full restoration this morning for all those in here who have been carrying around this idea that they have disqualified themselves or someone else disqualified them. You are a God of restoration. And Lord, we humble ourselves now. And we say, forgive us, Lord. Forgive us, Father, when we've missed the mark. Forgive us when we've been unteachable. Forgive us when we've gotten out of that season of desperation and then said, I got it from here, God. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. I'm out. Teach us, Lord, every single day what it means to be humble and teachable while at the same exact time being strong and courageous. Let us be quick to ask for forgiveness and quick to forgive others. Restore, Father, 
there's some in here who are stars like Esther who have let their lights go out and let darkness just kind of consume you. I pray right now that your light would shine, that there is still a light in you, and that you would allow the Holy Spirit to fan that little spark, that little ember of burning coal that is in you into a flame again. The Lord wants you to burn bright for him. He said, I'm, you are mine. You are mine and I love you. You are mine and I love you and I don't care. I don't care what, what situation you put yourself in. I don't care what, you, what your past circumstances are. You are mine. You are mine. And I am a God who can restore you. I am a God who will make you pure again, who will make you white as snow again. Your story isn't over. You are beautiful and you are lovely in my sight. Thank you, Jesus. You are a wonderful and amazing God that you give us you give us everything, Lord. And when we look and the world says that you don't measure up, you say you are the perfect person for the job. Thank you, Jesus, for that restoration of purity over all those right now in Jesus' name, over all those right now sitting in this room watching online, Lord, that you would restore it and that we would pursue you in it. Yes, Jesus. Remove that, that cloak of shame. Remove it off of them in Jesus' name. That, that has been wrapped around them in chains even, Father. I pray you break it. Break those chains in Jesus' name. And allow them to be washed clean in belief, Lord. And really, truly believe that they are pure in your sight. Pure in your sight. Lovely in your sight. Jesus' name. Amen. Let's worship.